I'm assuming you guys all like reading uh, white pages, yeah? Well, today we're going to be reading basically the Jerusalem uh, white pages. Um, we're going to be taking a look at Ezra chapter 2. If you guys are new here, welcome. We are in the very beginning stages of a series through the book of Ezra. So if you guys wouldn't mind opening up your Bibles to the book of Ezra, we'll get to work at a lot of stuff that we're going to be taking a look at. In, this, in essence, what it is, it's a genealogy. It's about 42,000 men that we're going to be reading about, uh, all in typical, classic, genealogical fashion. You know the chapters in the Bible that you typically come to and you just pass over? We're going to read every single name in that entire chapter. I absolutely promise you. It's important. It's there. God put it there for a good reason. We're not going to skip over it. I will be the one to make a fool of myself for you as I read them. Because I love you. And uh, it's going to be good. Hopefully we've got a lot of good stuff that God's going to speak to us through. So I'm going to pray. We'll get to work this morning on the uh, whole chapter. 42,000 men strong. Genealogy to boot. Jesus, thank you that you are here today. And we thank you that the very book that we hold in our hands, uh, as has been spoken, is God-breathed. It's from you. You've spoken it. And Lord, we thank you for that. We ask you right now that you would give us the ability to have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are very quick to just respond in love and obedience to you. So we commit this morning in your hands, and we just welcome you, and we ask that you would change our hearts. We pray, God, for not just uh, mere information, but we pray for uh, inspiration and transformation. So we commit this time in your hands, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name we ask. Amen? Okay, so what we're going to be doing right now is I'm going to jump in. I want to give you guys a little bit of a history, if you haven't been here for the past two weeks, about where we're going, what's taking place, what's happening up until this point. So the very first slide that you're going to see basically is going to give you a little bit of a synopsis of the history. So here we go. So first of all, Israel has been a nation up until this point. Uh, in Ezra, for about a thousand years now. About a thousand years, Israel's been going. To give you an example, kind of in contrast, America, we've been a nation for about 250 years. So we're just kind of junior varsity compared to what Israel was. They were a thousand years old as a nation. And they had their ups and downs. There were moments of uh, a great spiritual advance. Remember, they were a nation of people that basically started after this huge group of people uh, this, uh, this people group living in Egypt were taken out of Egypt. It's called the Passover or the Exodus. They were brought into the Holy Land called Canaan and they became a nation under God. They literally became a nation that was led by God, directed by God, guided by God for about a thousand years. Uh, what had happened throughout their history, there were, for the most part, uh, this sort of perennial sinfulness that was going on over and over and over again. It was punctuated by seasons of uh, response, repentance, obedience to God. But by and large, for the most part, the people of Israel lived disobediently to God. Even though they were a nation that were redeemed by God, God brings them out of Egypt on into the land of Canaan. Even though God blessed them, even though God literally gives them oceanfront property, takes care of them, provides for their, for their food gives them a great strong military. For the most part, by and large, they're a group of people that rather than obeying God, resorted to worshiping false gods, idols, 
oftentimes sort of uh, embodied by uh, sex, by power, by might, by wealth, all of these types of things. That's what was happening with Israel. The curious thing about this is that uh, when people refuse to worship God, they still actually consist to be worshipers. Uh, the reality is that rather than worshiping God, you will worship other things. And I think if you look at it closely, for the most part, we are a culture living in America here today in San Luis Obispo of worshipers. We are surrounded by worshipers. We're not surrounded by worshipers of the living God. We're surrounded by worshipers of sex. That's why the porn industry is so huge, so popular today. We're surrounded by people that worship power. That's why people are always... Uh, just looking for the next type of thing that will boost them, to give them greater power. Uh, this is the society we live in, a society that worships money. The more that you have, the more of this illusion that you think, the better your life is going to be. We live in a culture that worships uh, sex, money, and power. Okay, And that's simply because we are a culture of people that does not worship God. Okay? So that's, that, was, that was what was happening. They, rather than worshiping God, worship these other gods and other idols. And as a result of that, around 586, God raised up a very powerful nation called the Babylonians uh, under the king uh, leadership by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He comes into Israel, um, basically destroys the entire city, levels it, destroys the walls, also destroys their capital, which was Jerusalem, and destroys their very temple. So not only is their civil center destroyed, uh, not only is their social center destroyed, the city, but also their religious center is completely destroyed. So economically they're destroyed. Uh, uh, in terms of civil life, they're destroyed. Economically they're, they're destroyed. And what happens is all of the survivors, or most of the survivors, a lot of the survivors, are actually marched off into the actual capital city of the Babylonians uh, there in modern-day Iraq. If you look at it on a map, which I did this morning on Google Earth, it's about 550 miles away, or the equivalent roughly to leaving San Luis Obispo, going somewhere into central Oregon, or central Utah. It's about 550 miles away. Now remember, they did this probably in a mass horde. Many of them could have been chained. A lot of old people, a lot of you know, very, very young people, young families. Uh, everybody's sort of completely destroyed because they just watched their homeland completely be destroyed and leveled, uh, not to, uh, you know, unlike what happened to us on 9-11, where everything that we thought uh, we were strong, we had power, uh, we had a ma major wake-up call, that we were not everything that we thought that we were. We were a lot more vulnerable than we had thought of uh, prior to that particular moment. So these people marched 550 miles across desert on foot, back or into the land of Babylon, and here they are. So they're there for several years, close to 70 years. They're in an entirely foreign land. So I want you to think about this. So 70 years is equivalent to basically two generations. Two generations of people uh, have been established in Babylon. They made uh, their lifestyles in Babylon. They started businesses in Babylon. They built synagogues in Babylon, uh, worship centers in Babylon, um, they, they established life in Babylon. And what had taken place was this stirring of God. God was moving. And what had taken place really was a miracle. God opens this door for now the Jews that are in Babylon, that are there because of their disobedience, 
God sort of moves in a sweep of grace where he says, I want to bring you back to the land. So God opens the doors. And so under the leadership of a brand new king, who's a Persian king, the Persians basically took over the Babylonians as a world power, the Persians rise up and basically Cyrus's decree to the Jews and also to other uh, people that were taken captive was, go back to your homelands, repopulate, repatriate your homelands and live and enjoy and build up your broken down cities and worship your gods in the temples and and that, that's basically what had happened at the very beginning of Ezra. So what you're going to read now in the story in chapter 2 is this is a list of people, 42,000 people that had been stirred by God to go back to Jerusalem, a ruined city, uh, not too unlike uh, New Orleans, okay? just completely destroyed. They left it. We're talking this is two generations later. Some of the people that are going back to Jerusalem have never even seen Jerusalem. They don't have any picture of Jerusalem in their mind. All they know is what great-grandpa told them about Jerusalem. That's all they know. That's all they know. All they know is that Jerusalem once was this beautiful city. All they know is that Jerusalem once had this magnificent temple. All they knew is that Jerusalem once was the very center of all of God's dealings. It was the place where, where heaven connected and intersected with earth. That's all they knew, but now they're being told, all you have to look forward to is ground zero. So we're going to go back, we're going to start a whole new life, and we're going to rebuild our temple, and then we're going to rebuild our city. That's what's happening here. That's what chapter 2 is all about. It's literally this pilgrimage of 42,000 men, just men, uh, not including their spouses. So the numbers could have, obviously they brought their spouses, so the number could have been close to 50, maybe 55,000 people in total that had sort of made their trek from Babylon on back to Jerusalem. This is a miracle of God. This is a movement of God. In a lot of ways, I, I find it very similar to really what's happening even in our day and age today. Let me give you an example. We live in a culture that for the most part, worships false gods. We worship false gods of sex. We worship false gods of money. We worship false gods of power. We worship false gods of intellect. We worship false gods of self. And what happens for the most part, it's not really helping us. It's not really helping us culturally. It's not really helping us socially. It's definitely not helping us economically. And for the most part, our world, our country, our city, even though we live in an isolated portion or patch upon the central coast between two major cities, for the most part, if you look at people's lives, there are people beneath the veneer of smiles and everything's great that is in ruins. And what we really are on is we're on this mission that says we really believe that the greatest way to be a blessing to San Luis Obispo is to make sure that San Luis Obispo has a good church. To make sure that San Luis Obispo has a place where God is seen. Where God is tangible. Where God is there. The church that was being established in Ezra's day was a group of people that said, we really believe our God is great. We really believe that somehow we failed and yet God wants to renew. We really believe that Jerusalem's a great city. We really believe that Jerusalem is literally at the center 
of a major trading route, and because there's so many different people passing through that trade route every single day, every single year, we really believe that those people on trade route in life need to know about how great God is. We need a church there that represents how great our God is. San Luis Obispo is like this train station. People come here. For the most part, most of the people in our church are young and single. And what happens is people come here for four years, five years, and they leave. They go out. They go to some place, start a business, get a job someplace, start a family. And what happens is San Luis is this place that's constantly changing, a constant revolving door. And really the heart of this fellowship, the heart of the leaders in this fellowship is to say, we want a good church that loves Jesus, that broadcasts, that announces, that proclaims how great our God is. So that when people come through the city, that somehow they will see that life, life, true life, actually happens in submission to the King of Kings. That's really what we want. And so... Very similarly to the way these guys were living on mission, saying we are going to build a church in the city of Jerusalem so that the city can be changed, so that the world around it can be transformed. That's kind of what we're doing here as a church. We love the city. We love San Luis. We love the people here. We think we have a great thing going here in terms of a place to live. But we actually believe it can be better. We believe that through the power of God, and through submission to the life of God, that marriages actually can be healed. We actually believe that people can forgive one another. We actually believe that people who have been defiled by sin or by other people, that God can heal them. We believe that God, as King of kings, as Lord of lords in our lives, can actually make a difference. But we're living on a mission to see a church, a good church, built in the center of a city that has this revolving door. So that's what's happening. So I want to begin basically by jumping into the story itself. So picking up at somewhere around at verse 1 in uh, Ezra chapter 2, let's jump in. As I mentioned, there's a lot of crazy names in here. Uh, I am not that great at pronouncing them. And honestly, I've read this chapter a lot because I didn't want to sound really foolish. But I'm still going to sound pretty foolish. But... You can laugh if you want. That's okay. I still love you. So I'm going to do the very best that I can to read through them. And uh, some of the names are really cool names. Uh, so if you're kind of, you know, you're having a kid, and you're like, I need a good name. There's some good ones here. Really good ones here. You'll see them in a moment. All right? Um, if you're looking for, like, a new screen name for World of Warcraft, there's some really good names here, too. All right? So there's a lot of names that we're going to be reading. But what I want you to see about these names is that every single one of these people are people that responded to the call of God to live on mission. God loves them. This is the church in the Old Testament. The church. The word church just simply means called out ones. The gathering. Was there a church in the Old Testament? Yes, there was a church in the Old Testament. But yes, there was a church in the Old Testament. There was a group of people that loved God. There was a group of people that held faithful to the living God. They were called the church. Maybe not church in the way that we would understand it in the New Testament sense, but they loved God. They were called out by God, separated by God to do His call, to do to live forth His life. And so we're going to read about all of these people that God has placed His hand upon, 
These are people that one day, once we get to heaven, we will see these people. They will be there. These are God's chosen saints. Uh, Ezra chapter 1, Ezra chapter 2, verse 1. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and to Judah, each to his own town. They came with them, Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, this is a different Nehemiah than the one that the book is named after, uh, Sarahiah, uh, Relaiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvei, Rehum, and Baana. Alright, Baana. Don't name your kid Baana. Not a good name. Um, but what these guys are, there's 11 of them here. These were the leaders. These are the leaders. The name Zerubbabel, he's kind of the main guy that appears. His name appears in actually a lot of Old Testament books. A lot of the Old Testament prophets talk about Zerubbabel. In fact, um, it's important for you to note, Ezra was not the guy that actually built the temple. It was Zerubbabel. It was Zerubbabel. Ezra chronicled the story. He wrote the narrative down about the events, but Ezra actually doesn't even appear in the story until around chapter 7. But Ezra writes the story about this guy named Zerubbabel. So who's Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel actually is a leader. He's the leader. He's just some guy. We don't know a whole lot about him, about his background or anything else in terms of that. But again, these were a group of people that were living in Babylon. Again, probably living life, owning businesses, trying to make ends meet, taking care of their family, loving their kids. But these were people that somehow were trying to hold on faithfully to the living God. Somewhere along the line at this particular point, God puts a stir in their heart and they respond. So Zerubbabel is raised up and says, I'll go. I'll go. Uh, One of the things that's important for us to understand is that every time God wants to do a work, He will always have somebody or raise up a leader to do that. God will always raise up leaders to do that. It's just the way that God works. Uh, You see that example oftentimes in the Old Testament. If God wants to deliver his people out of Egypt, what does God do? He calls up a deliverer. In this case, it's Moses. Moses becomes a deliverer. If God wants to take out some bad guys, he raises up a Gideon. Gideon comes on the scene. And basically what happens is God just looks for people. And by the way, there are occasions where God would even find a woman. And she would lead the charge. So yes, God is equal opportunity. So the point is that what happens is that God just looks for people who would be willing to go. I was talking to a guy earlier this week. It's kind of an interesting thing as we were talking about this. Um, in, in our church, we have the same type of thing. What, I've, what we've noticed is that there are people that, that like to jump in and say, I'll help. I'll be a part of whatever needs to be done. You know, you need help here, I'll help here. Uh, you need somebody to, to, to pull this rope, I'll pull that rope. And then there's other people that come in and they're very quick to criticize and very quick to say, that's not how it should be done. You're doing it all wrong. That's messed up. The leadership is totally clueless. And yet you ask, what are you doing? I'm just criticizing and blogging. That's about it. That's about it. It's about all my gift is at. My contribution to the body of Christ is to blog against everybody I don't like. And, and the funny thing is, is that's, that's a lot of times the way the church or people tend to work. But we were talking about, like, how does this sort of work out practically? It's interesting, because he, he pointed out, he says, 
he says, I found that when people come, you know, they, they start, some, maybe they're young in the first maybe year, two years, they're just super stoked. They're like excited to be there. They jump in, they help out, they serve, they're part of a team. And then maybe about two years into it, uh, they get a little bit older and they learn a little bit more. Maybe they pick up a book and they read it or something like that. And they think, well, wait a minute, this is not how our church is doing it. And, and, and then from that season, then they become very critical. It's like, ah, oh, this is horrible. The service went too long, and the preacher preaches too long, or he yells too loud, or they shouldn't do it that way. And the worship leader should ne- you should always have like six singers all holding the mics and doing this, and it, that's the way worship should be. It's just like everybody has an opinion, and, and there's these seasons where people go through this. Is like I got an opinion, and then, and then he was saying, and then after that season of being ultra critical, then they. Some, usually, by and large, here's what happens. They get married. I'm not kidding. This is like, this, I've, I've literally observed this. I've watched this at our church. They get married, and they begin to realize that uh, now they're sort of under the microscope because, you know, they've they got a spouse on us. It's like, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. You look horrible. Put your shirt. You know, it's like, brush your teeth. You know, and then all of a sudden, they're like, ah, I don't like being criticized. I had a good friend of mine that, that actually is exactly what I'm describing. It's funny. Um, God's way of dealing with him, you ready? Is God made him a pastor. So he calls me back, you know, years later. He's like, dude, uh, I'm sorry, man. When I went to Calvary, I just complained about everything. Now that I'm a pastor, I, I have, I have myself in my church. And he yells at me all the time. He's always complaining all the time. He always has something to say or a gripe against me or an email that he's sending me. You shouldn't have said, you know. And, and he's just like, I realized what I must have been and what I must have been like. So here's the point I'm trying to make is this, okay? It's okay to have an opinion, all right? Have your opinions. I'm glad you have an opinion. But it's an entirely different thing, and, it's, and, it, and I would say it's not okay to just simply criticize and do nothing about it, all right? I'm a pastor not because I think the church is perfect. In fact, by and large, I just think the church is pretty messed up. But I want to do something about it. I want to see God change. I want to see God do things in people's lives and motivate people to serve Christ, to love Christ, because I really believe, again, that God's a great God. And the way that God establishes His glory here now on the planet is through His church communicating. The way Jesus said, city set upon a hilltop cannot be hidden because the light shines forth brightly. But what God does is He moves in people's hearts that say, I'll do something about it. There's 42,000 people in Babylon. They hear that the city is in ruins. Rather than complaining about it, rather than blogging, rather than emailing, rather than like, this is horrible. Who's the leaders of Israel? This is lame. Why would they do this? They say, let's go do something about it. Let's go change it. Let's go make it, let's go make it different. Let's go build a church there. Let's go reestablish the glory of God in the center of the city. And then we'll build a wall around that city, like what Nehemiah does later. And let's do something about this. The way that God does that, he raises up these leaders. And in this case, it's this guy's Roosevelt. I want you to real quick forward to the book of uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Zerubbabel is actually kind of an important guy. But what I love about this is because... Uh, he sort of arises out of obscurity. We don't really know a ton about him prior to the book of Ezra. 
But after the book of Ezra, he becomes sort of this big wig guy. He becomes this guy that God uses in a really profound way. And really what happens is Ezra, I'm sorry, uh, Zerubbabel somehow is stirred in his heart by God to do something about the ruins of the temple in order to reestablish the glory of God. And what I love about this is that from this point forward, he lives establishing this legacy of godliness. And so for the next 10 to 11 plus generations, out of Zerubbabel's lineage, after the dude's been long and dead, he has this lineage of very godly offspring that go on and on and on. So check this out. Uh, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to grab there myself. Matthew chapter 1, about verse 12, says this. After the deportation to Babylon, that's, that's when they were sent off into Babylon, um, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatil. Okay, here's another one of those genealogies that oftentimes maybe you know, we'd skip over. Uh, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatil, and Sheatil the father of Zerubbabel. It's the same Zerubbabel and Ezra. So it's now going to give us basically the lineage of Zerubbabel. So who came from Zerubbabel's uh, lineage? Who came out of his line? Who were the other people that flowed out of Zerubbabel's life? Check this out. In verse uh, 13. And Zerubbabel, the father of Adiab, Adiad, sorry, Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Elikim, and Elikim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. Check this out. I love this because here's what's happening. This guy, Zerubbabel, comes out of obscurity. Nobody knows who he is up until this point. Somehow he responds to God. God speaks to him. We're not, we're not told anything about how this whole transformation took place in his heart and his life. But what we're told is that Zerubbabel just obeys. Something changes in Zerubbabel's heart where he says, I'm just going to do what God tells me to do. If that means to leave Babylon, travel 550 miles across desert, I don't know what lay in store for me. To, to go occupy a city with 42,000 people you barely know to plant a church. And from that point forward, Zerubbabel has 11 generations of godly offspring leading up to Jesus. Guys, I need you to hear this. Men, I need you to hear this. So oftentimes, guys, live with this mentality in life that Nothing is more important than just what happens in front of me right now. Okay? The, the bottom line is, is that so oftentimes the men, you guys, you live very shallow, very short-lived life. There is way more to life than trying to figure out how to get free porn off the internet. I need you to think about this. Because this is the stuff that life is made out of, that God wants to establish godly men who hear the voice of God and will say, I will follow, I will count the cost, I will travel 550 miles away from comfort and peace and prosperity to serve the living God, to establish a legacy for generations to come of godly sons, of godly daughters, so that the Christ would be seen.
Think about this. Isn't that really what you want? Wouldn't you want to know that one day when you're 85 years old, you have grandsons that love Jesus with all their heart. You have grandsons that are serving God. That you have granddaughters that are married to men that love Jesus with all of their heart. So that finally when you kick the bucket and you die, 500 years from now, in eternity, when your great, 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 great grandson walks up to you, says, Grandpa, thank you for loving Jesus and making a choice in your life to follow me, to follow God, to give your life to Him. To be a father, to be the type of dad that says, you know what, I love my kids. I'm going to tuck them in at night. I'm going to read the Bible to them. I'm going to live in such a way that demonstrates, that broadcasts in my house how great Jesus is. How? Not just by preaching about Him. Not just by making the kids memorize Scriptures. No, no, no. Live the model of loving your wife. It's not enough to just simply say, kids, memorize Scripture. God gives us this ability to model it. By saying, husbands, love your wives. Christ loves the church. That's a model. That shows. It is, that is MTV for Jesus for kids. It is a video playing every single day that the kids can watch. That says, ah, that's how Jesus loves the church. That's how Jesus loves me. The same way daddy loves mommy. And I'm still working on it myself. The bottom line is, that's what I want. I want my daughters one day to marry godly men that will treat them the way I treat them. That will sit down with them and read the Bible to them. That will love them. That will go on bike rides with them. That will hang out with them. That will share the gospel. That will hopefully live the gospel. Because you know what I want more than anything? is I want my daughters to have their own daughters someday that will have their daughters that will have this godly offspring, this legacy that goes way beyond the grave of my life. Guys, clue for you. That's really what women want too. Alright? I'm really honestly telling you this. Am I right, women? You want a guy who just sits around on a couch all day long and the, the, the ultimate aspiration of his life is to get into the chair and watch football? Is that the type of husband you want? No? Okay. I didn't think so. Uh, the point that I'm making is that the way that God does this is He finds men that will say, I will hear the call of God and I will follow. For generations to come, I want to make certain that my offspring is going to reflect something of the greatness of God. That's what we find in this guy, Zerubbabel. He's He's that leader. He's that leader that says, my God is great. I'm going to hear His call. Do you know that today, your life can change? Today, choices you make right now can actually change the course of where that's going to go. Either Godward or downward. Choices by who you choose to marry. Choices by how you choose to obey God in your life right now. Everything right now. God is looking for people that would say, who's going to follow me? Who's going to serve me? Who's going to hear my voice? Who's going to respond? Who's going to be obedient? Alright? As we kind of move on to this, what happens is we see this guy, Zerubbabel, and these other ten leaders that sort of lead the charge. Uh, as I mentioned, God does raise up leaders to lead the group, and that's what these guys were doing. It says uh, later on in verse 3, the number of the men of the people of Israel, 
the sons of Parosh. Now we're going to get into this huge barrage of names. I'm going to do the best I can. 2100, or, or uh, 2172. Sons of Shephatiah, 372. Sons of Ara, 775. Sons of Pehoth, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. Now, what you're reading here, these are the names of the heads of the families, and these are the uh, names of the other people under those families that are basically coming alongside of the head of the household to say, hey, we'll go. You know, uh, you know, Pahath, Moab, our you know, godfather of the family said, we're going to go to Jerusalem, so we're going to follow him. So we're all going. And our number is, you know, 2,812. And that's kind of what you're reading here. Um, then verse 7 says this, the sons of Elim, uh, 1,254. The sons of Zutu, 945. Sons of Zakai. That's kind of a cool name, Zakai. Zakai. Um, 760. Sons of Bani. 642, the sons of Bibai, 623. It's like a musician, Bibai. My name is Bibai. I'm a musician, Bibai. The sons of Asgad, 1222, the sons of Adokim. He was a Star Wars fan, 666. The sons of Big Vi, had a kid brother named Little Vi, 2056. Sons of Adin, 454. Sons of Atur, namely Hezekiah, 98. Sons of Bizai, 323. Sons of Jorah, 112. Sons of Hashum, 223. Sons of Gebar, 95. Sons of Bethlehem, 123. Sons of Natofah, Natofa, 56. Sons of Anothoth, 128. Sons of Azmazath, He's a Star Trek fan, 42. Sons of Kiriath Aram, Shephirah. Kiriath Aram, Shephirah. Horrible name. Don't ever name your kid that. Alright, kids like in first grade, what's your name, little boy? My name is Kiriath Aram, Cheshavah. 743, 26. The sons of Nikmash. 122, the men of Bethel and Ai, 223, sons of Nebo. We found him. If you were wondering where Nebo was, we found him. He's in the book of Ezra. 52, the sons of Magbish, 156. Sons of the other Elam, 1254. The sons of Harim, 320. Sons of Lod, Hadid. Oh, no. 725. Lord. That's an awesome name. Lord. What is your name? I'm Lord. This is Garg, my daughter. <laughs> Sorry. Sons of Jericho, 345. Sons of Sina, 3,630. I love this. Whoever this guy is. Now, who are these guys? These are nobodies. Right, these are people that we don't know anything else about them in the entire Bible. These are like drywallers. These are everyday people who write code. They sell lattes at Starbucks. They drive Yaris's. 
These are people that are just everyday, regular, just like you and I. That's who these guys are. They're, they're, they're nothing special, nothing just grandiose about them. They're just everyday people that says, God, I'll follow you. I'll follow you, Lord. That means leave everything behind. I'll, I'll go. I'll go. Love this. Verse 36, now we kind of get into some uh, classifications here of some of the different people. In the first case, we're going to see the priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Joshua, 973. Uh, next, uh, it goes on, it says in verse 37, the sons of Emer, uh, 1052, sons of Pashur, 1247, the sons of Harim, 10,017. Now the priests probably would have been equivalent to like uh, the pastors here at the church. Uh, we have four full-time guys, four-time, four full-time pastors that are serving this body. We've got a truckload of elders that are part of also kind of the unpaid uh, sort of uh, pastoral staff to help to oversee this church and to lead and to help try to bring about just health and godliness in the hearts of the people. Uh, that would have been equivalent to some degree to the priest. Verse 40, the Levites, these would have been kind of like the deacons, the people that helped out. The Levites was a group of people that were uh, basically uh, from the lineage of Levi. He was one of the twelve sons of Jacob. Um, and these were people that kind of helped out. They set up chairs. They ran sound. They made sure PowerPoint was working at church. And, you know, they took care of the candles and blew the candles out and relit them and set up, tore down. That was what the Levites did. The sons of Joshua and Cadmiel, the sons of Hadoviah, 74, sons, uh, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 128, the sons of the gatekeepers, sons of Shalom, sons of Atur, sons of Talmon, sons of Akub. Again, a great name, Akub. You know, name a boy, that's a great Akub. I, I mean, if you had that name, you wouldn't even need to make up a name on World of Warcraft. I mean, like, you already got it. It's like, Akub. I'm an 18th level orc. Alright, Akub. Uh, the sons of Hatia, the sons of Shobai, in all 139. What I love about this is it points out that part of the Levites, that some of their job was they were singers. So here they are traveling 550 miles on foot okay, across the desert. Um, when you go on a really long journey, right, trip, let's say, let's say you're from the Bay Area and you get ready to go up to the Bay Area, what's one of the most important things you do before you head out on your trip? You make sure you have. Not gas, aside from gas. You guys are too practical. Aside from lattes, what's more? Music, right? I mean, the only guy that listens right? Music. You listen to music. Right? So these guys had their own, like, pocket musicians. They were called the singers. And these, they had the singers that came along, and as they were traveling, these would sing. They would help them re, sort of balance them, to get them back to thinking about God. They would probably sing the Psalms and remember how great God is. Because part of uh, the church, part of this journey, part of the mission is worshiping God. That's what they did was they worshiped God. As they were traveling across the desert, they had the singers to help uh, prompt worship to God, to sing to God, to love God. Worship was an important part. Now, I've mentioned this before in the past. You will either worship God or you will worship substitutes. Oftentimes, for the most part, I think we are prone to just simply worship substitutes. We find other things that are of great uh, or of much lesser value than God, and we elevate those things and we worship them. 
by paying uh, attention to them, by devoting our lives to them, by tithing our money to them, by devoting our energy to them. Those are the things that we worship. And one of the ways that the children of Israel, as they were on this very long journey, were trying to make certain that their minds would stay focused on God was to worship God. So they would have the singers come along and they would sing. There's something really unique about when the church gathers and they sing. They worship God. They consider how great God is. They sing songs to God. I realize maybe if you're new here, if you're not a Christian, you, you walk in, you hear people singing, realize it's a little bit trippy at first. I mean, for the most part, there's not much to compare it to out there in the world. You can't compare it to like a concert. For them. I mean, when you walk in a room and you see people with their eyes closed, their hands raised, I admit it looks kind of weird. All right? It looks kind of weird. I remember when I was 15 years old, I was not a Christian yet. I was brought to church. I'd gone to church on a Sunday morning. My parents took me there, kind of dragged me in. I wasn't really interested about going. But I walked in. It was a room just a little bit smaller than this. As I walked in, the pastor... Uh, was also the guy leading worship, and he began to play his guitar and sing. Everybody was standing up, and I remember exactly where I was sitting. I don't really remember the songs uh, that we sang, but I do remember as soon as people started singing, they closed their eyes, their hands began to raise. I just remember just so radically being impacted by that. Just something happened in my heart at that moment. I just can't even explain it was as if God just said, listen, I'm real, and I'm here, and I want to change you. I'm here, and I'm real, and I want you to know me. I was brought up in sort of a Roman Catholic background. I had known all about God. I'd taken CCD classes. I'd gone through sort of a lot of background studies and stuff. I knew Jesus was God. I knew Jesus died for my sins. I think I would probably say I was totally orthodox in everything I believed. But when I walked in that room and I saw people who not only claimed to know God, or named, claimed to know about God, but also knew God personally, I had no category to explain that, other than I don't have what you have. There's something that happens when the people of God get together and sing and worship. You know that a lot of heaven's going to be full of that? I've said this before. I mean, I love you guys. Calvary Slow, I love you guys. All right? But we really need to work on our worshiping abilities. All right? I mean, we get together sometimes and we're just like, I love you, Lord. Just like, you know, we're sitting on our hands and we're really afraid to raise them and lift our voice. It's okay. It's okay. It's all right to get a little bit Pentecostal. That's all right. Go for it. All right? Because I'll tell you what, in heaven, there's words that are used to describe the worship there that talks about, and loud shouts, loud clasps of, you know, clap, loud noises. All these types of uh, s- scenes kind of paint the scenario in heaven. Okay, so if, if you're, if you don't like singing too loud, if you're a little bit like cautious, like oh, people think I'm weird, you know what, I would just encourage you humbly by saying, get used to it, because that's what all heaven's going to be like. Get used to it. Let's start now. We will have some time in a minute, as soon as I'm done, where we can worship Jesus and sing loudly to Him and raise our hands to Him and love Him because He's a great God. Okay? So that's what these guys did. They sang. All right, jump into verse 43. These were the temple servants. Next. 
the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hashupha, sons of Tabath, sons of Keros, sons of Siaha, the sons of Padan, sons of Labna, sons of Hagabah, sons of Akub, sons of Hagab, sons of Shamlai, sons of Hanan, sons of Gedel, sons of Gahar, sons of Riaha, sons of Rezin, sons of Nakoda, sons of Gazim. Woo! 49. Sons of Uzzah, sons of Peesh, sons of Basai, sons of Azna, sons of Menuhim, sons of Nafishim, sons of Bakbuk. <laughs> Bakbuk. Probably another name you might want to not name your kid. The sons of Hakufa, sons of Harher, sons of Bosluth, sons of Mihida, sons of Harsha, sons of Barkos, sons of Sisera, like a sissy, sons of Tima, sons of Niza, sons of Hatepa. Verse 55, these are the sons of Solomon's servants. Okay, so th- these, uh, these guys are probably listed. We don't, know, we don't know why exactly, but here's my guess. Solomon was the original builder of the temple. Okay? So what they're about to build is what's traditionally known as the second temple. Um, the first temple was destroyed. That was the temple that Solomon built. So what that means is that it's possible that these sons of Solomon's servants could be a reference to the grandkids of the original architects of the original temple. These are great guys to have on staff. So these guys come along. It says the sons of Sotai, sons of Hasophereth, sons of Peruda, sons of Ja'ala, Ja'alaman, sons, sorry, I love this one. This is my, one of my favorite. Sons of Darkon. What's your name? I'm Darkon. Where do you live? I live in that castle. Castle Darkon. Right? Guy has like a, like a club in his hand. That is a man's name. Darkon. Alright? Sorry. You can tell I get a kick. I gotta keep myself with me. Alright. Um, the sons of Gedel. Sons of Shephathiah. Sons of Hatil, sons of Hokerath, Hazabayim. <laughs> no comment. And the sons of Ami. The temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. Now the next category of people that you're going to read, these are basically sort of illegitimate people, meaning that they're unable to produce any type of genealogical record that proves they are who they claim they are. Why is this important? Because let's say, for example, if you're going to be a priest, you've got to prove lineage back to Aaron. Right? You've got to be able to prove that Aaron is your forefather. If Aaron's not your forefather, then you have no way of proving or verifying that you are a legitimate priest. So if that's the case, if you don't have the papers or the pedigree or the resume to prove that you are part of this priesthood, you won't be able to be a priest. Same thing is when they're about ready to start building stuff. They want to make sure, are these people part of the tribe of Israel? They want to know them. Uh, they're people that just kind of show up and they're not really known. In some ways, kind of like some of you guys. Right? You show up, 
You come to big meetings, but you don't ever really get involved. I mean, if you're here, you're brand new, kind of checking things out, you're deciding where to go to church, that's great. Take your time, pray, figure out where God wants you to land. But if you've been here for some period of time, there's a reason why we keep saying, be a part, get involved, jump into a community group, help out. We've got, because we want to get to know you. We want to be a body that's just not one big mass of people that just sort of go in and go out. We want truly to be able to do life with each other. And the way that we do that is we get together, we be community, we live community, we be the church. So this was a group of people that were not allowed to be a part of the overall work that was about to take place because they could not prove who they were. Verse 59, the following were those who came up from Telmea, Telharsha, uh, Cherub, Adnan, Emer, they could, uh, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the house, or the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652, also the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, sons of Hagos, sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, who was called by their name, just in case you were wondering. These sought the registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor, probably Zerubbabel, told them that they were to not partake of the most holy food until they should, until the priest, uh, or until they should be a priest to consult with the Urim and the Thummim. But this was a means by which they were to discern what God's will was. Whether or not they truly were legitimate guys or not, they kind of went through this process of the uh, Urim and the Thummim. Um, verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360. What I want you to feel in this passage is that these are unnamed, unknown really for the most part people. That God loved and they obeyed. God says, I'm going to put the name in a genealogy in a book forever. And they will be in heaven. There's sort of these unnamed servants that says, we will leave all behind to go follow hard after God. To make sure that God's name is established. We'll go back. We'll leave house, family, home. We'll count the cost because God's worth it. Verse 65, besides the male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, they had 200 male and female singers, Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, their donkeys were uh, 6,720. You can imagine they had some parking issues. 68, some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, they made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. So at this point, the house of God, the temple had not been rebuilt. But when these people finally came to Jerusalem, they saw what was happening. They said, listen, here's our goods. Here's our money. Here's what we have. Here's our abilities. Here's our talents. We give freely because we believe God's worth it. It goes on, it says, verse 69, according to the house of God, to erect it on its site, according to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 Minas of silver, 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants lived in their towns, all of the rest of Israel in their own towns. So what you're going to see is this 
mass assembly of people as they gather together, as they finally make their way into the actual city itself, they see sort of the ruins or the remains of where the temple once stood. Now it's just sort of a, a, a broken up, destroyed foundation or what used to be a spot where there was a foundation. And they come onto the scene and they're like, listen, we're here. We want to do whatever we can. We will give whatever we can to be a part of this. We will dedicate, devote everything we got from our time to our talents to our treasures because we want to see a church established and healthy and strong in the middle of a city. That would be great. You guys, let me try to summarize it like this. All right, almost done here. What I want to summarize is this. Really, the church, the building of the church, I think for the most part traditionally has been about some guy up front talking, trying to motivate people. Church Christianity has for the most part becomes kind of like this motivational speaker, trying to get people to you know, just hang out, whatever, do what they want to do. But the point of the matter is, is that the way that the church has to work is it has to be a group of people that say, listen, our God is great. And our city's in ruins. We love our city. We love the people of San Luis Obispo. We want to see God's name established in their lives. We want to see God come down and change people. We want to see God transform marriages so that Jesus is seen. We want to see little kids raised up knowing who God is. We want to see Cal Poly campus reach for the gospel. We want to see people around the world touched with the gospel from here. And it takes people that are willing to say, I'll do it. The church isn't perfect. Calvary Slow is not perfect. They've got issues. We do have issues. We've got a lot of things that are messed up that aren't working right. A lot of things. But what it takes to get it done is people that will say, I will rise up. I will do what God has called us to do, what God has called me to do, because He's great. I want to join. I want to be a part of it. I want to see God's name proclaimed. It takes people that are willing to say, I will do it. Let me give you an example. Back in 1993, I was 23 years old, been married for just about two years, my wife Sherry, and we had basically, we had great jobs down there. We were both working together in the same place. We worked for kind of a, a ministry called the Word for Today. I never went to college. Sherry never went to college either. Graduated from high school, started working full time. When I was about 22, 23 or so, somewhere around there, late 22, 30, 23, the Lord allowed us to kind of drive through San Luis. And that was about it. It was nighttime. It was dark. We didn't see anything. Didn't know anything about San Luis. All we knew is from that point forward, I'm totally shrinking the story down, but all I knew is that from that point forward, God had just stuck San Luis on our hearts. The only way I could describe it was, woe is me if I don't go to San Luis. That was it. That was the only way I could describe it, is that if I don't go to San Luis, I will be in sin. That was the only way I can describe it. So we packed up our bags, we left our jobs, we moved to slow. All right? We realized that that's what we call it, slow. Not San Luis. Not San Luis. It's just slow, right? You can just call it slow. So we moved here, and we're like, this is an amazing place. And what we knew is that God says, I want you to move into slow, and I want you to start a Bible study. We started a Bible study. We lived on 533 Pismo Street, right downtown San Luis Obispo, and we had a little apartment. We moved here. We were t- my wife and I were talking about this the other day, that when we moved here, we had no jobs. We had nothing, all right? We didn't, I don't even think we had anything in our bank account. And the, we got rented a house. 
I don't know how that happened other than a miracle. I mean, most people, you walk up, you're like, hey, we're looking for a house. Uh, they ask you, where do you work? Uh, we don't have jobs. Great, here's the keys. I don't know how it worked out. God gave us a house. And we, we my, the next few weeks, God gave us a job. I started working around town. I worked at Big Sky Cafe. I worked at, you know, Albertsons. I worked all around, all sorts of different places, just to make ends meet. But all I knew was God said, start a Bible study, start prayer meetings, start reaching out, open up your house. Tuesday nights we did. We had dinner. People would come over. We'd hang out. We started in the book of Romans. Just started teaching. Back in those days, I led worship. Praise God, nobody lost their salvation back then. And it was just awesome. All right, it was awesome. And, and, and God blessed that. God blessed that. Within, I don't know, eight months or so, we totally outgrew our house. The next step, God says, I, I want you to move into a Seventh-day Adventist church right across from Grace Street downtown. We were there for several years. We met there for several years. We outgrew that. We had three services there. God brought us here. We've seen God do great things here in this place. Now over the past few months, God's opened up another door for us to move into this other new building. We've been telling you guys about that for the past few months. And uh, we've got all these things that are literally ahead of us. Uh, we met as elders the other day. We just prayed. And the thing that just so radically hit me was that as much as we've asked God to be faithful to this church, to be faithful to the city because we love the city, to build a church that's strong, that loves Jesus. For the, we have never pushed to make buildings central, pushed to make things like this. God has just brought them into our lap and says, be faithful with This is a tool that I give you. This building, here where we meet, is a tool which God has given us to use it for me. It's the same thing that God gave us with this new building that we're going to be moving into. It's just a tool. It's a tool that we say we want to be faithful with, but we realize really realize we can't do this on our own. We need a faithful group of people that have been stirred in their hearts that really want to see Jesus exalted in the city because they love this city, because they love their God, because they really believe that God has a plan to change people's lives. You guys, the bottom line is this, is, is we can't do being a church in sort of just the centralized, like pastoral staff, they'll do church, everybody else will just show up. That's not how it works. We have to be a group of people that are on mission that says, listen, there's needs, I'm going to jump in. I will give freely. I will give of my life. I'll give of my time, my treasure, my talents freely because I love God and because I want to see God's name made great in the city. That, in so many ways... What Ezra was on, or chronicled with Zerubbabel, is really what we're on. Very similar path. We want to see God's name made great in the city by building a church. And it takes people that have moved in their heart to say, I'll do it. I'll help. What do you need help with? How can I serve? How can I be a part? How can I lay my life down? Some of you, like I said, are just checking things out. Keep checking. No pressure. Some of you that have been a part of this church for some period of time and you've never jumped in, all I would just say is I just ask you to pray. How would God have you to join the team and say we will be part of the faithful, part of those that will seek to really make God's name pronounced, announced, put on display in San Luis because we love this city. We want to love it for God. I just challenge you to think about that. There are so 
many needs in this church. So many needs. I mean, we started the Big Buddies program here. God has recently just raised up someone to kind of help lead that, take care of that, take care of some of the needs there. It means we've got a truckload of kids that literally go to this school. They're not Christians. They're not raised in Christian homes. They're getting bad grades in school. Maybe their parents are in, you know, in jail or divorce or something like that. And the principal of the school, who's a good friend of ours, has asked us as a church, can you match some of the people from your church up with some of the kids from my school who can hang out with them? And when we do that, we've been doing that for the past couple of years. Some of you might not know that. And, and you know, we've had some people help out and lead with that, but those are needs we have. We need people that want to help out and be a part of that, help lead that. I mean, even down to like sound ministry and setting things up and breaking things down, everything you see in this room was not here at 6 this morning. Everything. Somebody did it. My fear is that when the rest of the body keeps hearing over and over and over again calls for needs but never responds, what happens is a very small few of faithful end up getting burned out. They really end up getting burned out. I would love to see our body say, I don't want to have that happen. I want to see our body rise up and say, do you have needs? I'll help. i leave you with this challenge. If we are truly the living temple of God as a body, we're called to love one another, serve one another. When needs rise, let me put it this way. If Jesus was in this room right now, and someone announces, hey, there's somebody who's in need of help. There's some areas and we have some need because some people are getting burned out. Some people are having a hard time. <laughs> I was going to say, what would Jesus do? But I don't want to go with that Christian cliche. But what would Jesus do? All right, I'm going to do it. Like, he would be there to serve. If Jesus is in our hearts and we feel the urge to serve, to love God, to be on mission, I would just see God moving and mobilizing us to that call. I'm going to pray. We're going to finish. Chris is going to lead us in a few songs of worship. I encourage you guys to worship, to sing. It's okay to sing. It's okay to get a little bit Pentecostal. That's all right. We love you. It's okay. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then uh, if you're here, we're going to respond to the Lord by not only singing, but also by giving our tithes and our offerings. Um, and if you're here, you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life. We've got some people over there that would be happy to pray for you. Um, but I encourage you, call upon God's name. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the greatest way that you can be involved, the greatest way that you can be involved is just give your life to Christ. We don't want your money. We don't, we don't want you to feel... You don't, we, don't, we just want you to know Jesus. Just trust Jesus. Call upon Him. Ask Him to forgive you for your sin. Enter into that relationship that God wants to have with you. Let's pray. We'll worship. Uh, and we'll dismiss you guys. Jesus, thank you for your grace. We receive it here today. We just thank you for all of the blessings that you shower upon us. We want to give our lives back to you wholeheartedly.